I don't know what your experience of primary school was, but, but certainly for my generation, uh, you're pretty likely to remember and experience something like this. It might have been a physical education lesson or something a bit more racy like Scottish country dancing or even interpretive dance, something like that. And you'd all be in the uh, main hall of the school and you'd be, you'd be told to find a space on your own and then you'd be told to pretend you were a tree and the teacher would put on some suitable tree-growing music of some kind, and you had to mime growing into a, into a tree. You crouch down and, and start off in a suitably, I don't know, sort of acorny way, if you were an oak tree, that's right, isn't it? And, and then as the music went, you'd sort of grow up and sprout branches. Uh, how anybody ever entered the acting profession after an experience like that, I, I do not know. Um, perhaps you had that experience, maybe you didn't, I don't know. Uh, but if you, if you did, or, or just imagine you did for a moment, what, what kind of tree would you have been? Would it have, would it have been possible from your, your BAFTA award-winning mind to know, to the casual observer, what kind of tree you were. Well, my name is Ian. I'm one of the leaders at Rotherham Evangelical Church. And as the other Ian said, we're continuing in our series in the book of Matthew. And we are in chapter 12. And we're going to see today how Jesus keeps on teaching about good and evil. Uh, how he's going to uh, through his words, continue to tell us about his kingdom, even in the middle of rising conflict with the Pharisees. And we're going to look at that in four parts. Uh, and if you're taking notes, uh, they'll appear on the screen behind me. They'll appear on the screen behind me, even if you're not taking notes. Um, and you might want to keep your Bible open, because we are going to be referring back to that quite often so we're on your on your device as you're going so first of all the first section we're going to think about is unsustainable slander unsustainable slander book look back with me there in verse 22 a demon possessed man who was uh, also blind and deaf uh, a blind and mute excuse me has been has been brought to jesus who heals him of all three conditions probably the the muteness and the blindness has come from being possessed. Um, but unusually, instead of focusing on the guy being healed, Matthew doesn't mention him again and focuses instead on the reactions of the crowd and the reactions of the Pharisees. Uh, the crowd are astonished, as you would be. Um, they know they've just seen a miracle and they're aware that, that this kind of thing is what they could expect when the Messiah came. The Messiah, who was also called in the Bible the son of David, the one who God has promised to, to come to earth to save his, his people. But, but Jesus doesn't, doesn't quite fit the bill of what they're expecting. He, he appears to be quite an ordinary bloke. 
He's not raising an army to overthrow the Romans. He's not setting out. He doesn't appear to be setting out to to save the Jewish people in some corporate sense as as a nation, as a whole. He's talking about individuals. He's talking about teaching individuals. He's showing them what the kingdom of God is like. He's been an example to them of what it's like. He's inviting them to, to stop following their own selfish desires and to follow him instead. So the crowd, the crowd aren't sure. They're not sure. You can see their, their, their response is, is a question. Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Based on what he said and done, they're, they're still unsure about how to judge him. But the Pharisees are sure, right? They're sure. There's no, there's no hesitation there. The Pharisees know exactly what they think about him. Uh, and we can see that by their, their slander, their, their blasphemy in verse 24. When they hear the crowd ask that question, they answer, they answer it. Uh, and they don't, just say, they don't just say no. They say, no, actually he's the opposite of the son of David. This Jesus is only casting out demons using the power of demons, using the, the power of Satan, doing, using demonic power. But, but without much thought, we can see that this, this slander is indeed unsustainable. It's illogical, it's ridiculous, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, the word, you can see that ver- the word, verse 24, Beelzebub, you might not be familiar with that. That's another name for Satan, another name for the devil. It translates literally as something like Lord of the Flies. Don't get confused with the book on that. Um, the Pharisees are saying that Jesus is on the same side as Satan. Uh, let me just let me just pause here and just a, a little sidebar. It's worth reminding ourselves that Satan is real. He is almost certainly not red. He almost certainly does not have a pitchfork, and he almost certainly does not have uh, goat's feet. But here are a couple of things that we should always re- be reminding ourselves about Satan, about the devil. Number one, he is real. He is real, and he is our enemy. Jesus often mentions him. He is totally evil. He desires our destruction. He desires the destruction of the church. He desires the destruction of our marriages, of our friendships, of every good gift. He hates God and he hates us. He wants us to go to hell when we die. But the second thing to remember about Satan is that he is not as powerful as God. He can do some stuff, but he doesn't have the same authority as King Jesus here. For example, he can't create anything. He can only destroy things. He can only be in one place at one time, for example. And we know that when Jesus comes back again, Satan will be defeated and overthrown by Jesus. So just some things to remember there, that little... Sidebar about Satan. 
but it, it says there, verse 25, Jesus, Jesus knew what the Pharisees were thinking and what they're saying. They've just, they've just said it out loud. Um, and so he steps up and in the next few verses just shows them that this slander is indeed unsustainable. He tackles the lies of the Pharisees straight on. But in doing that, he does more. In doing that, he goes much deeper and uh, exposes the Pharisees' slander as a symptom of something else. Our second point, a symptom of there being two unmistakable sides. Two unmistakable sides. And it's clear which side he's on and it's clear which side they're on. He's going to use three illustrations. Uh, First of all, verses uh, 25 and 26, he points out just common sense. Uh, An entity that's divided against itself cannot stand, cannot do whatever it's supposed to do, whether it's a kingdom, whether it's a city, a family, a household, a sports team, whatever it is. If it's divided against itself, it cannot achieve what it needs to do. In this case, it can't defend itself. By casting out this, this demon from the afflicted man, Jesus has reduced the sphere of influence of, of Satan and his demons. He, he's moved that, that man into the kingdom of Jesus, into his own sphere. In no way could you say that was helping Satan. The devil is not stupid. There's, there's nothing here. For him to gain. He only loses. The Pharisees suggestion that Jesus is doing this through the power of Satan is clearly ridiculous. But secondly then verse, verse 27. Jesus compares himself to the followers of the, the Pharisees. Now uh, the followers of the Pharisees would sometimes claim to have cast out demons. Uh, But if the only way to do that is through the power of Satan, then the Pharisees' statement here about Jesus also condemns their own followers and, and by implication, condemns them as well. If if the only way to cast out demons is through the, the power of Satan, then the Pharisees and their followers are evil. And if that isn't true, as Jesus says, verse 27, uh, excuse me, verse 28, then the kingdom of God has come upon them. So, okay, Pharisees, you're either evil or the kingdom of God is here. Interestingly, Jesus usually speaks about the kingdom of God in the future sense or the near future sense. Here he says it has come. It's here now. The kingdom has arrived. The king is here and he is doing the healing. The Pharisee's suggestion is clearly ridiculous. Verse 29, the the third illustration. uh, Jesus points out that while the demon must have had a certain amount of power to afflict this man, Jesus' own power and authority has to be far greater. Uh, How else could Jesus throw him out? You cannot... Jesus said you cannot uh, rob a strong man's house unless you tie him up first. You have to be stronger 
than the strong man. Um, there's also a, a cultural aspect as well. The Messiah, when he arrives, the, at the time, the, the Jewish people believed that when the Messiah arrived, he would literally bind up Satan. He would literally tie up Satan. That was part of their beliefs. And so this, again, points them towards the fact that if you bind up Satan, then you're the Messiah. So Jesus is, again, claiming, I'm the Messiah. The Pharisees, well, the Pharisees have said that he is in league with Beelzebub is clearly ridiculous. All these three things point to just how ridiculous what the, the Pharisees have said is, but it also highlights the underlying ultimate spiritual reality. That in creation there are two realms. There's the kingdom of Jesus and there's everything else. There are two unmistakable sides. And the border between them is sharp. And the Pharisees were on the wrong side of that border. And notice there's no neutral ground. There's no grey area. There's no bit where you're between the one and the other. If Jesus says, if you're not on my side, if you're not in my kingdom, you are against me. And that is an extraordinarily dangerous place to be. So if, the, if these sides are, are unmistakable and, and clear, how do we move onto the side of Jesus? Can we move onto the kingdom of Jesus? The answer is always yes. The answer is always yes. We can trust in his death and resurrection. We can trust in the fact that we are sinners. That without believing in his death and resurrection, we are condemned, condemned to hell with Satan. But by, trust, by trusting in him, by trusting in the fact that he died for our sins, we can turn away from that hell-bound race and instead join Jesus in his kingdom now, today. Unless we're determined not to. Unless we're determined not to. So our third point, unforgivable sin. Unforgivable sin. This section now in verses 31 and 32 is, is a widely uh, misunderstood passage that uh, often wrongly produces fear in the hearts of believers, certainly when there should be only reassurance. Uh, but as we dig into it today, I want to suggest to you that there is a, a straightforward application, a straightforward explanation for what Jesus is saying here. Uh, we know it's important, we can see there, it, he says, and so I tell you, that's the way Jesus often uh, emphasise something. So I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. That's the, that's the passage. 
And whenever, we, whenever we're reading the Bible and we, we take a passage just on its own, we're in danger of taking it out of context. Just, we'd always encourage you, whenever we're reading the Bible, you need to understand two contexts. The first one is the context of the whole of the Bible. And the second one is the context of the verses around the, the ones that you're looking at. For example, this passage, in terms of the whole Bible, we know that God is just, but that he loves mercy. We know that he is a God who is willing to forgive any sin when someone turns to him in trust and repentance. So, so it, it, it just doesn't fit if something, somebody says something that they would be never forgiven. Jesus is gracious to forgive those, even those who, who deny him and mock him when they come to faith in him. He will forgive them. As would the Holy Spirit, as would God. But secondly then, we, we can get a better sense of what's going on when we think about the verses around it. The Pharisees have just said that Jesus has performed his ministry only through the power of Satan. They have witnessed something good done with the power of God. And they've called it evil. This, this unforgivable sin is to knowingly reject the Holy Spirit. Not just to reject, but to knowingly reject the Holy Spirit. If it is the Holy Spirit who brings us salvation from God in the first place, then when we know exactly who God is, what he's done for us, that we know that he sent his son Jesus into the world and that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose from the dead on the third day and that the Holy Spirit has come now to, to bless us and to show us his word and to feel the promptings of the Holy Spirit uh, pricking our conscience and then to still reject that and to reject it again and again and again and again. That is unforgivable sin. It's not primarily a sin of the, of the lips, it's a sin of the heart. If such persistent rebellion carries on, then, then our hearts become harder and harder and we become incapable of repenting. And as you need to repent to be forgiven, it is the, the permanent condemnation is just a, a logical result of a hard heart that cannot repent. The unpardonable, the unpardonable sin that's talked about here is self-inflicted through willful unbelief. The Pharisee's accusation appears to be like that. Not because of what they said, but because of what it reveals about their heart. They can't bring themselves to say that this miracle that they, they, they know must be from the Messiah. They can't bring themselves to say that that is the case. In fact, they're going to say, it's the devil. He's in league with the devil. They willfully rejected what they knew to be good and true. So, if the Pharisees' unsustainable slander 
is a, is a, is a symptom of their position on the wrong side of two unmistakable sides. And if they have committed an unforgivable sin, what's given them away? What has given their position away? How can we know where they are? How can we know where we are? How can we know where anyone stands? Fourthly then, Jesus tells us it's through undeniable speech. Undeniable speech. Uh, At one point I used to do a lot of job interviews. I don't know if you've ever done job interviews. Many of you have probably been interviewed for a job. It always used to surprise me how often candidates would answer questions in ways that were clearly trying to present me with a, a particular image of themselves to make themselves look good and yet in that very act revealed the very thing that they were trying to cover up. It just, time after time, it's just like, really? Yeah, you just said that. Wow. Um, verse 33, down to verse 37. Jesus teaches us that good only comes from good. Evil only comes from evil. Good fruit comes from a good tree. Bad fruit comes from a bad tree. And he's not primarily talking about fruit here. He's talking about the things we say and the things we do. The slander of the Pharisees is saying something good, something divine in fact, has come from something demonic, something evil. In this section Jesus tells us that conduct, especially speech, reveals character. A mime is not going to tell someone what kind of person you are. A mime is not going to... They're not going to be able to guess what kind of tree you're demonstrating in your mind. When you're just trying to gesture at people, they will not get what kind of person you are. It is conduct, especially speech, Jesus says. It reveals what we treasure It reveals what's in our hearts, what we have stored up in our hearts. That idea is is treasuring something, you know, something valuable in our hearts. And Jesus is saying that the, the remedy for sin is a radical change of heart that comes about through belief in him. What should we say? What should we say then? There is so much. Just in this, in this short passage, there's more to bring out, but we, time's run away from us. What should we say? If you're a Christian, then make sure people can tell what kind of tree you are, so to speak. If you're a Christian, make sure that by your words and deeds, it is clear that you are a Christian. That you treasure Jesus as your saviour. That you treasure the word. That you treasure his church. But perhaps you're not a Christian. Perhaps you identify more with the, the crowd. You're examining Christianity. And you're asking, could this Jesus be the son of God? It's a good question. It's one well worth exploring. Ask your Christian friend about it. 
Let them open up the Bible to you and show you that it is true. But beware, you cannot hold that position safely forever. Jesus says there's no neutral ground. He's made it clear that even even in, in holding that position and not buying kind of having answered that question you are at great danger it is vital that you turn and trust him but maybe maybe you're not a christian and you're you're actually convinced that jesus was not the son of excuse me that you're not a christian and you're convinced that jesus is not the son of god that he did not die for you he did not rise from the dead and you've taken up that position but but maybe I want to challenge you just to reconsider that. I challenge you to look at that again, to find out more. You are in grave peril. You may think of your words and deeds as good, and yet they're coming from a heart that does not treasure God. That does not treasure all his good gifts for you. You are in a very dangerous position. You are on the other unmistakable side. Turn and follow Jesus today. But when you're looking at today's passage, there is another position that you might be in. Perhaps you know that Jesus is the Son of God and that he did die for you and that you are a sinner in need of his rescue. But you have hardened your heart You have refused to follow him, maybe out of pride, maybe out of distrust. Perhaps you treasure your own lifestyle and cannot bear to surrender it to Jesus. Trust me, he wants to offer you a better one. But having having received those promptings of the Holy Spirit, by continuing to ignore them, you are, you are at danger of being condemned for an unforgivable sin. Such willful unbelief will not be forgiven. Friend, hear me clearly at this point. Turn away from your sin and put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You are in such an extraordinarily dangerous place. Which one are you? Which one of those four positions describes you as you read this passage today? If someone were to see your life and they were to look at your, your words and your, your behaviour, what would they say about your character? What would they say about your heart? Like interviewing someone, would it be clear? It usually is. What do you treasure most? What do you store up in your heart and treasure? Can we tell what that is? Well, let me pray for us. And then we're going to listen to some people singing about what we treasure most. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which it cuts through so many things in life and gets down to what really matters. Whose side are you on? Lord, I pray that 
whether we're listening from home or whether we're here in the room, that we would all today be clear. Be clear and if we're not already on Jesus' side, that we would step across that line. That we would recognise Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Father, please. Father, please, just from this passage in Matthew, make it clear to everyone which side they're on and what to do about it. Thank you, Father. Amen.